All right, very good. And welcome to this uh, dry bulk panel. We have, um, we have a lot to talk about, um, but let me just quickly introduce our, our panelists. From, from left to right, we have uh, Magnus Olverson from, from 2020. We have Gary Vogel from Eagle Bulk, Per Heiberg from Golden Ocean. We have Martin Wade from, from Green Road, and uh, we have Hamish Norton from Starbulk. Um, you know, dry bulk has been, I guess, a big of a roller coaster this year. Um, I, uh, many had a rather bleak outlook after the you know, tragic events in, in, in January in, in Brazil. Uh, but it seems, or evidently, things have picked up a lot since then. Uh, if you look at the Cape sizes, you know, it tends to be the most volatile segment to be in. They were trading, or the freight rate were low, below 5,000 a day for most of March and April. Uh, in June, they were back in cash generating territory. In July and August, they were in excess of 25 a day, and so far in September, we're running above 35 a day. So I was thinking for the first 10 minutes or so, just to get a bit of a sense of, you know, how did we get where we are, and essentially where are we going from here? Um, and I guess, you know, Hamish, to start with you, you know, simply put, what on earth has been going on over the last six months? Well, uh, what's happened, I guess, is uh, a number of good things. Supply of iron ore from Brazil has come back uh, almost completely to where it had originally been expected. Um, demand for iron ore is strong in China. Um, the trade war has not reduced Chinese steel production in any way we can see and has not reduced their demand for iron ore. And then a, a very large number of Cape size Newcastle Max and VLOCs have been um, trying to get scrubbers put on. And it seems like more ships have been trying to get scrubbers installed than there are shipyards able to install scrubbers. And so you've got ships parked, you know, two, three, and four abreast at the pier um, in order to get their scrubber installed. The shipyard is unable to supply enough people to install the scrubbers, and so these ships are waiting for much longer than was initially expected, and it's actually taken a substantial fraction of the fleet out of service. Um, and it will continue to do that as far as we can tell through the rest of the year. Um, Starbulk has had some delays relative to what we initially expected, but um, in our latest investor report, we published a schedule of what we expect, and so far that is, is holding, and that included some increases in shipyard uh, delays, but you know it's it's been very positive for the uh, supply demand balance. Very good. I mean, since you alluded to already, I mean, Magnus, I, I just heard yesterday apparently there was a Cape size who were spent more than 100 days at a Chinese repair yards for a scrubber. You think that's you know truth or false? Uh, I haven't heard 100 days, but I think when when before people started doing their retrofits, the people were typically saying they would spend 20 to 30 days and. Uh, I, I know Starbulk are probably among the best ones, but we're hearing about ship owners we know who've taken at least up to 60 days. So that's that's how long it's been taking. Adding to that, you have the fact that a lot of Chinese repair yards have taken on simply too much business, so we have queuing. And then lastly, with, I guess, tier two or tier three scrubber manufacturers, there's also been some delays in deliveries. So 
uh, I think Cambridge is right. It's, it's, it's been a factor, but I think it's going to become a bigger factor throughout the rest of the year. Last work we did, I think we, uh, we estimated 60 cape size and larger had put scrubbers on in the first half. And I think we, we see 140 due for retrofitting in the second half being quite back end loaded. And it's going to continue more into uh, to 2020. So it, it's, it's a nice environment with volumes coming back and uh, and these disruptions that we're, we're seeing on the supply side. Right. Gary, maybe final one on that point. I know you're going down to, to China next week for, yeah. to, to kind of follow your processes. How, how has the experience been so far from Eagleboat's perspective? Yeah, so we've been doing this um, partly at the shipyard, partly at sea uh, with riding crew. And so our time in, in the shipyard effectively on those ships outside of statutory has been about 10, 10 days, so to 12 days um, for the actual scrubber install itself. Um, and that's gone really well. We've decided to move 15 of the ships to full yard install in order to uh, help us achieve the December 31st deadline we set for ourselves for 38 scrubbers. But we're definitely seeing pressure in terms of, of um, labor between yards, and, uh, and that's, been, that's been ramping up. And I agree with Magnus. I think, I think it's only going to exacerbate because as ships, are, as ships across China are spending longer, other ships are scheduled to be coming in. And so it, it, across the board, there's definitely that pressure. I think it also depends you know, what yard you're at, what your relationship is with that yard, too. If you're an owner and you have an existing relationship, and more importantly, what's that relationship in 2020, 2021 in terms of statutory dry docks and things like that, you're going to get a different level of service than if you're showing up for one time for a scrubber install that's been arranged by a manufacturer. So, so it's not one size fits all, but, the, but there's definitely, uh, to Hamish's point, there are ships everywhere in China right now. Right. So hopefully, you know, that trend can continue. I guess one another, you know, helping factor was essentially after the uh, the accident in, in January, there was essentially no ships ballasting to the Atlantic for Brazilian cargoes. Um, that is going to normalize afterwards. And, you know, Pierre, Pierre, are you a bit surprised that kind of rates have maintained at high levels, you know, after that coming back? Mm, no, I'm not, not really surprised at this stage. Uh, you point to correct factor uh, that it was a skewed with more ships going and staying in the Pacific and, and, and those that already were in the Pacific they didn't dare to ballast towards it or towards uh, Brazil. I think that will uh, that will last for, for, uh, for a bit longer but it, it will normalize going forward but it's, uh, it's not uh, it will surprise me more if it was in December than, uh, than in August. And then, Martin, from your perspective, you know, with, with Handys and, and Surpras, how is that impact, you know, the iron ore, how is that impacting the trade of, of your ships? It doesn't really impact us, but it's the feel-good factor. If capes are kind of going up and up and up, sentiment turns positive, uh, smaller owners, we, we try and get more bullish. But I think what we're also seeing is, what's rather happened on the capes, on the smaller ships, is with, with uh, soya being out of Brazil being exported to China and with the shortage of ships in the Atlantic, you're, you're now seeing charters being forced to take ships from further away, which is great. But what that also has the effect of is stretching the fleet. So instead of those ships uh, doing, say, 50, 60 days, they are doing 90, 120 day round voyages. So all in all, it's building very, very nicely. Mm. And Hamish, I guess, you know, a factor kind of holding back the market last year was the lack of, of growth in Chinese imports. And, that, you know, that has been playing for most of 2019 as well, before really um, July and August. 
And it's kind of a, a gap between what the Chinese are producing of, of crude steel and what they're essentially uh, taking of imports. Because it should be a quite you know, easy equation by looking at the, the domestic production, the inventories, and, and the scrap usage. So it feels like there's, or at least in our estimates, it's kind of a big gap. Any, any views on that? I mean, I, I don't know that I have any better understanding than, than you got of that, but you know, it, it seems as though steel inventories are not building particularly, so they're, they're finding customers for the steel they're producing. Um, and you know, the trade war, oddly enough, may even have helped this because, of course, the, the Chinese stimulate their economy in ways that tend to favor steel consumption, um, you know, real estate and infrastructure. Um, and, of course, anything that favors steel consumption is good for the dry bulk business. Any other have it, Magnus? Well, I, I guess you asked about uh, imports. I think it's very clear that China has been through an inventory destocking cycle, which, depending on whether you look at the mill inventories or the port inventories, which are more frequent. It probably started sometime early 2018, and after the accidents earlier in the year, iron ore prices shot through the roof, literally, uh, which of course further incentivized the Chinese to draw on their inventories. But I think you're, you're getting down to pretty low levels now. It's one and a half months of consumption on the port inventories, and, uh, and, and we're starting to see a ramp up in in imports, but I think that, that that end to the destocking cycle and potentially some restocking represents an interesting upside right. to the market. So you guys, you know, looking at the old market, the, the inventory is, is kind of a religious thing. I mean, Hamish, maybe for you, Chinese inventories, are they as important for iron ore as, you know, for, for oil? You know, I, I assume you're speaking about iron ore inventories? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the iron ore inventories, uh, obviously, um, it's, it's always better that they be low than that they be high. But you can never tell what's in the center of that pile of iron ore. When you have a tank of oil, it's kind of all mixed together. But when you have a pile of iron ore, you, you take from the outside first, and you don't know if the inside of that pile is of the same quality and only the owner of that pile knows and he's not saying. So, um, you know, frankly, there hasn't been nearly as much correlation between the level of iron ore inventories and the level of iron ore imports as, as there is, for example, in the oil business. Martin, I know you don't do a lot of, of iron ore. Maybe you do a bit more on the coal side. You know, coal has been a very positive this year, um, seeing imports back in, in, in China and elsewhere. Uh, how big of an impact does it have for, for your ships? Uh, it, it's quite a large impact. Uh, early on in the year, there's no doubt Chinese uh, coal imports slowed down. Uh, that's picked up very nicely over the last two, three months, which uh, takes out Capsamaxes, Panamaxes, helps the Supras, and, and in turn the Handys. But also, you have to look at India, which has been going gangbusters with, with imports recently, where they try to ramp up their own domestic production, and, and I think nine of the last ten weeks it has been coming down. And then you take Vietnam, whose imports so far year to day are up 50 55%. So, yes, we, we're all going forward. Coal will become a thing of the past. But at the moment, for those countries that are industrializing, it is a huge part of the en energy profile, and coal is moving, and it's very positive. 
And Gary, for Eagle, I would imagine some of the ultras are doing close to 50 in a day at the moment. Any other factors you're you know, seeing on the positive side? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Martin Martin made the point. Um, you know, China, first six months of the year, soybean exports were, were significantly down. And, and, and you know, uh, July, August have been quite robust. And then on top of that, we've had pretty significant exports of, of wheat from Black Sea, from uh, U.S. from uh, St. Lawrence, Canada, and most of that is long haul, going to Southeast Asia, Indonesia, um, Thailand, Malaysia, and so, so those are taking significant um, long haul days out, and to Martin's point, we now have seen for the first time in a very long time ultramax vessels being taken, you know, DOP China for round voyages, so that's, that's definitely been the driver in the market. We're also, you know, Indonesia just said that they're going to ban Nicolor Jan 1, which has happened before, and I think you're going to see a pretty significant ramp up up to that in the expectation that that might happen too. That could for further support the market, you know, over the next few months up to, up to in December. And I guess what happened on the soybean side last year, it can't be repeated this year. So what's the implications of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the long haul, so, you know, grain, for those that don't know, you know, grain is, is primarily a second quarter into, into third quarter event in South America, and it's a fourth quarter into first quarter event in Northern Hemisphere, being the U.S. export market. And last year, you know, August was robust uh, with Brazil, and then the U.S. typically selling to China didn't happen. The U.S. was backfilling, selling to Europe. So we lost those long-haul days in Q4, and that was, I think that was one factor in, in the disappointing Q4. Um, a pullback in coal in, in, in China was also definitely one as well. But I think it's something we need to be uh, cognizant of is that that could continue given where we are in the continued you know, trade, uh, trade war uh, dispute that's going on. An unwinding of that would, would be uh, beneficial, but it definitely will play, in, play into Q4 as you know, we position our fleet and, and, and look, to, right. look to how to maximize that. I mean, since you brought it up, I'm just thinking, you know, the U.S. tried, you know, Martin, if you put on the optimistic shoes, what's, you know, what's the best to come out of this in the next six months? On the, oh, the, the China-US trade war. Well, hey, I'm always an optimist. Being a ship owner, you've kind of got to be. Um, I think it, it, the thing about the trade war is that from a dry bulk perspective, it's maybe 0.5 or 0.7%. It actually has an effect. It's very little. It's basically soybeans. China doesn't buy coal or uh, iron ore from America. But I think from a sentiment point of view, it, it's huge. And of course, if the world is slowing down, as it, it could be the case, it's, uh, it, it, it's bad. It, it, I think if he does a trade deal, or the greatest ever trade deal, it'll be very, very positive. And, and I know for most of you are quoted, we're all quoted, investors seem to think that because there's a trade war on, there's no cargo moving. So that's something else we have to fight. But generally, you, you end this trade war, and I think the fillip to the market will be pretty huge. And they always say, sentiment changes first, and then the fundamentals will follow. Very good. Hey, Michelle, I'll let you put on the, the pessimistic shoes. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Is it kind of a status quo, or is it more of a, you know, a further aggravation? Sorry, what's, what's the worst that can happen with the trade war? Oh, I mean, is it just a prolonged, you know, status quo, or, you know, further tariffs? You know, what's the worst? Well, well I, I don't know that there are any more tariffs that can be applied. I suppose existing tariffs can be increased, but, um, you know, I think the, the, the big negative is that the Democrats who are running for president seem to think that the Chinese policy of Trump is about the only good thing he's ever done. 
Um, so it, it's quite possible that this, uh, this policy may not change, uh, which would be bad news for the world economy. Um, and, you know, but let's hope I'm wrong. Let's hope that that's, that's not what happens. And, you know, let's hope that the, um, the health of the Chinese pig population increases. I mean, one, one of the reasons for the reduction in soybean movements has been that the, the, the pigs have, I guess, the African swine fever. Um, and that's caused a reduction of about 25% in the Chinese pig herd. Um, and, you know, to build that pig herd back up again will require a lot of feed. And even if it doesn't come from the U.S., you know, the Brazilians can import American soybeans and export Brazilian soybeans to China, and that's even more ton miles. Very good. Uh, I guess the final one on, on kind of these, you know, the, the commodity prices seems to be very important for, for dry. You know, coal prices are important for Chinese imports. We've had some big movements in iron ore prices this year. You know, went from as low as 60 to 120 and now back at, at 90. Maybe for you, Pierre, I mean, what's kind of the, the sweet spot for, for, you know, these kind of prices for, to get the trade going? Mm -hmm. It's difficult to say that, that what the sweet spot is, but I think we are more or less on iron ore. It's, uh, it's around where we are. If you, it's, uh, we are dependent on, on, on the, the prices staying in a certain band. If they go too low, of course, the, the exporter don't want to export. And if they go too high, it's, uh, it kills the, the import. So it's, uh, it's important for shipping that, it, that, that the commodity prices stays in a certain band. And for iron ore, I think where we are right now, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of doable. Yeah, I, th I think it's also important what's driving that price, right? I mean, if demand drives price up on a commodity because of a robust global economy and, and what have you, you can support it a lot better. If, if iron ore prices go up because supply gets cut off, obviously, you know, that's bad because the margins aren't there for the producer, but also there's not enough cargo to move to, 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 to fill ships. So I think that's an important driver as well. And, and obviously, it, it's clear which one is preferred. and. and and what we saw, you know, back, you know, in the mid 2000s was, you know, commodity prices shooting up and, and dry bulk demand, and that was, was extremely inelastic. It just kept going in one direction until it didn't. Yeah. All right, then um, maybe a bit of a you know stupid question, but you know, it's, it's something investors ask us a lot, and that has to do with um, the implications of higher bunker prices next year, because there's a general opinion out there that, you know, there's probably some slow steaming um, in, in, in most shipping segments. But I mean, if you, look, if you look at dry and you say that next year the ballast and laden speed goes down with 10%, it's effectively removing 10% of the capacity. And if the, you know, the demand or the trade is, is kind of a status quo or, or even growing, you know, I would imagine that there's kind of a urge to, you know, to, to get that cargo moving, meaning that freight rates could, could go up again. Well, I, I, you know, I mean, in, in principle, if there's no elasticity of demand for dry bulk movement with respect to the price of dry bulk movement, the charter rate should be proportional to the fuel price. So if people's fuel prices double, all things being equal, which of course all things never are, the charter rate should double in order to keep the fleet moving at the same speed, which it has to do, otherwise it can't carry all the stuff. 
Right, so the effect of that would be higher TZs, even adjusting for bunkers? Uh, absolutely, yes. The TC rate, all things being equal, if demand doesn't drop because of the higher price, the TC rate should be proportional to the fuel price. All right, I heard you, I heard you say that before, Hamish. I'm, I'm still a bit, you know, struggling. Any, any I'll other show you the math. I'll, I'll give you a, kind of our, our, our view on, on fuel price for, for next year. I mean, we talk about the spread all the time because from, from companies that are installing scrubbers, the majority up here, right, fuel spread will, will drive the return calculation. The wider the fuel spread, how quickly you get that back. But another important factor is where that spread is set from. Is, is it set because heavy fuel drops in price dramatically, or is it set because, because compliant fuel is much more expensive? And so on the current spread where the, where the futures are on a blend between Singapore and Rotterdam, we, we calculate that the, our ships would slow down by 5.5%. And if we use 200 days, that that's, you know, goes down to about 3% out of the market. So that's where we feel that if, if we were to apply that, I'm not saying every owner, you know, follow speed curves as, as religiously as we do that are, you know, computer driven. But if you did, that would, in our, in our world, that would take out 3%. The other thing I would say is that it also depends how many ships are scrubber fitted because if heavy fuel prices drop and you have a large concentration of scrubber fitted ships within that segment, those ships could actually speed up. Uh, in, in Supermax and Ultramax, we expect less than 10% of the ships to be scrubber fitted. So the number of ships that potentially are speeding up versus the ones that are slowing down, obviously, is, is, is much different depending on, on where you are. Right. I think we might actually be seeing the impacts of the fuel prices already. If you look, you know, if you look last year or two, there's been a pretty tight correlation between average trading speed of the Cape size fleet and rates, and where rates are now should actually suggest that the fleet would have been speeding up. And I think if you look at it in parallel to uh, to the fuel spreads, as Gary talked about, the fuel spreads have traded one to one with Brent for a long time and a few weeks ago they detached and I think it has to do with the fact that people are actually starting now to uh, to, to, to adjust to uh, also for bunkers. I mean, if, you, if you're going on a round trip to Brazil, that's 90 days and you're not allowed to bunker on the way back. So probably it's 100 days from when you, you leave China to when you can actually bunker again. So I think that might actually be happening already and it's probably the reason why the fleet isn't moving faster um, at current rates of 35,000 for capes. Mm. Interesting. Can I just add, I think as Gary said, it's going to be very sensitive. And he's like, not every owner does the same. We, we're like Gary, we owner operators. But on the basis, a lot of owners fix their ships to charterers who are running exactly the same program whereby what is the best speed to steam at. I think if this price does go up, you'll see ships slowing down quite dramatically. And, and you know, it, it, it's one, one knot is 8% or whatever you want to do it. And you look at, you see what's happened with the fleet now with maybe 2 or 3% out on scrubbers. If you were to take another 3 or 4% out, it's very, very positive. So to be honest, as Hamish says, it should pass through. High bunker prices generally correlate to higher freight rates. I guess, you, you know, everybody is, is very focused on the spread for next year. And I guess the current spread is, you know, very supportive for scrubber investments. But there's also been a kind of growing divergence between bunker prices this year in, in various ports. So at the moment, there's around about $100 per ton of a difference of HFO in uh, Singapore versus Rotterdam. And so my, I, I guess the question is, you know, if, if prices are, you know, unstable already, what, how could we see those prices evolve into 2020? Per? 
I, um, uh, to put it another way, I think it will be a lot of disruptions, a lot of various things that we are that is difficult to foresee on uh, on the bunker prices. People are already, and we, and I guess everybody else, is already preparing for for the shift. Uh, it's all about, and you're talking about the HFO in Singapore going up. That's because kind of suppliers they are kind of cleaning the barges to not carry HFO in, and they they don't want to, to to buy that in. So all these kind of bunker procurement issues are already happening. Uh, people are cleaning tanks, it's, and, and availability of fuel is already happening. So it's kind of, um, yeah, where it will go, it, we see it already, it, it has started, it's very difficult. And I think it's very, it will vary from port to port and, and region to region how this will play out as well. So the most important is to, to kind of make sure that you, you have the availability of the fuel that you actually need. That's partly why we, enter into this uh, JV with Trafigura uh, in order to secure supply, whether it's MGO, HFO, or also lots of fuel oil, uh, because we will need all, all grades. And Hamish, you have uh, you know, some Newcastle Maxes. I would imagine they burn at least 45 tons a day. Have you, you know, changed, are, are you bunkering less in Singapore on the basis of much higher fuel, so does it really matter? <laughs> It, it always matters, and, and we, uh, we pay a lot of attention to bunker prices in terms of where we bunker, and I think we've been bunkering in China uh, quite a bit recently uh, because of the price difference between uh, China and Singapore. Um, and, you know, we're going to pay a lot of attention in the time leading up to 2020 and in 2020 as to, as to where we bunker. Uh, you know, one thing I expect that we will do in 2020 is to buy more bunker fuel when we see it available and priced well and fill up our tanks, which is not something we generally do now. Um, but uh, you'll probably see us use more working capital to uh, basically use our ships as a store of bunker fuel when we, uh, when we see it available. So maybe going back a bit to, to where earnings are, I mean, we're 35 a day for September. I imagine you're starting to book 4Q cargoes now. I mean, Magnus, for you guys, with the Newcastle Maxis, if kind of everything turns out according to kind of your, your base case, how do you see 2020, you know, you know handing out um, or giving the money back, in essence, to the shareholders over the coming years? Well, I'm not going to make a prediction on where rates are, but if, if they happen to be at 35,000 and our, for Cape size, our Newcastle Max will typically make around 50, including you know, the scrubber benefit. At those rates, I think, to take it in stock price terms, we would generate free cash flow that we could pay out as dividends of around 30 kroner. Stock is 78. So it's, it's substantial free cash flow generation at these levels. And we still have some ships that aren't delivered, so if we have the same type of rates in 2021, we would close, pay closer to 40 kroner. So I don't think we dare to hope for, for the rates to stay where they are, because then we would pay back essentially the whole market cap in just over two years. <laughs> it would be nice, but I, I wouldn't bet on it. Fair enough. And Gary, maybe for you, I mean, you haven't been as vocal about dividends yet. I know you're doing a lot of, of investments still, but you know, the rates are at six years high, or, or even better. How do you think about this, you know, going forward? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll, I'll 
put the caveat like magnets that you know the rates their spot where they are. We started this quarter at ten thousand, so we're at fifteen you know fifteen today. But um, we've we've been quite vocal. We we look forward to um, you know, returning capital to shareholders. I mean that, that's that's what we need to do. Um, but we felt last year it was we got a lot of questions about that. Felt it was premature given where we were, where we felt we were in the cycle, uh, the volatility. And all of a sudden in Q1, when this market backed off un unexpectedly, those questions stopped. We, we look forward to that day, but we're still in the midst of this CapEx. IMO 2020 isn't here yet. So we, one important thing is when you talk about a dividend policy, I think you know worse than not having a dividend is having one and then changing it or, or, or pulling it back. We'd rather be a little late to that and, and, and make sure it's sustainable and, and appropriate. Um, but but it's definitely something that we look forward to, and and uh, you know we're definitely closer uh, today by definition than we were we were yesterday. And I don't mean that flippantly. We we absolutely look forward to, to to getting there. But you know it's it's a meaningful we're in a meaningful change period right now. Martin, what about I know you're not very happy about the, the share price of Green Roads, uh, and at least in our numbers, you're pretty much the, the cheapest dry book name out there. So, so what's the game plan? Yeah, it, it's the discount to NAV. Um, but to, to a degree, you can understand that the markets, they got very, very fed up of shipping, full storms. Uh, I think for us, obviously, at the, these levels, it is tremendous. I think with all of us, we start to make money, the share prices will reevaluate. Um, I'm very much with Gary on, on, you know, the dividend will come, but I think also one has to look at internally, do we need to pay down some debt? get our ducks and ducks in a row. But I, I think to make shipping you know, investable again, it's going to be a combination of a sustainable dividend policy. And as Gary says, you know, one minute you're paying out a lot, but then you're not doing anything. It's a matter of picking it. But obviously, we will be under pressure. But I, I think it's, yeah, I mean, to us, all of us start making money, and I think the whole market and the perception of us changes dramatically. Because if we're cash positive, we can't have uh, share prices at 40, 50, 60% discount to NAV. And the other thing of this market, of course, is the tri-cargo NAVs are now going up because the, the second-hand value is going up. So it, it is strange, but uh, you've got to be positive. And I think we'll get there. But let's start making money, and from that point onwards, it would, we'll get a little easier. Maybe, Hamish, maybe flip it around a bit. Back in you know, February, March, all your ships were getting 5,000 a day in the market, and you have quite a few of them. Were you afraid, you know, at some point we'll be returning to kind of the 2016, 2017, when, you know, essentially all we talked about was, was runway? Well, I mean, maybe we were, you know, naive, but we actually believed that the market would do what the market has in fact done. Um, and, you know, we, we, we basically believed that Brazil would fix its iron ore supply problem, and we believed that there would be an awful lot of ships tied up in port to install scrubbers. And it's happened pretty much just the way we predicted, which it almost never does. <laughs> um, this was a unique exception. All right. And Pev, you, you went through you know, soft restructuring back in 15 and 16. I wouldn't call it soft. <laughs> okay. I think it was quite good. <laughs> it seems we, we pretty the hard at the time. The yeah, it was pretty hard at the time, but we fixed it once and once for all. Yes. And I came back out of the restructuring one year ahead of the time. Uh, started to pay a dividend as well, as you, as you have seen. We have a relatively kind of flexible approach to it. We look at the... At the yeah, not only the, pre the, the, the reporting quarter, but also the, the market we are in. 
So we, yeah, we have started to return dividend or return capital to, to shareholders, and uh, I think we will look at the market. We are flexible on it. We, uh, it's easy to cut back. We have very, very low kind of comparing to 2016. I don't think we were there, and uh, we don't have any capex, uh, at least not any significant capex. No new buildings. Everything is financed. We repay our debt regularly. Uh, more or less uh, repaid in the same as we, we uh, level as we depreciate the vessels. So then excess capital can be used either to, to further investments or, or to, uh, to pay back the shareholders. And we will, we will be flexible on that going forward. And if the market consists or stays at where it is, it will be quite good. Yeah. And, and by the way, I apologize. I wasn't referring to your restructuring. <laughs> I okay, was referring to mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. Maybe just one more on that point. I mean, if, if we turn values back to where they were in 16, you know, five-year-old CAPE sizes were in the low 20s. Do you feel, you know, are, are your companies better positioned now than when you were, you know, were back then? Any takers? Gary? Yeah, I'll take that. I mean, I think Eagle today, uh, I, I joined the company and first restructuring meeting was 21 days in. So uh, I think in four, it's four years uh, this, this week, I think Eagle today is a totally different company than we were. You know, um, we, we recapitalized the balance sheet at that time, subsequently pay, paid back uh, what you would call at that point rescue capital. Uh, subsequently, we now have a, a, a Norwegian bond, a convert. Uh, we've acquired 20 Ultramaxes. We sold 14 of our oldest, smallest, least efficient ships, and, and I think our balance sheet is completely different. So, you know, there's very little, I like to say, pretty much the only thing that's the same is the name of the company, and, and, and I feel that, you know, we're in a much different place. And I also think it's also worth saying, I think the, the industry, the supply side, is in a much different place as well. I mean, we were coming off of years of five, six, uh, percent uh, supply growth, uh, and, and now we're in the twos. So I think across the board, Eagle and, and the industry are, are much different. Maybe a final question for you, Magnus. You, uh, I think 2020 was kind of incorrectly reported as, as tendering for the BHP uh, for, for LNG cave size and Newcastle Maxis. But you know that aside, we've seen you know orders on, on both tankers and dry, certainly also on containers. Any any views on you know where we go from here on, in terms of propulsions? Um, I, I think it's very clear with this ESG wave that's, I guess, sweeping over uh, everywhere. People, if you're ordering a ship today that will be delivered sort of late 21 or early 2022, you, you feel obliged to think about dual fuel and LNG. Um, firstly, we're not going to order anything because we are we're looking to, to pay dividends. But I think we've certainly looked more academically, and I think if a new Castle Max B building today is 55 million, uh, to have it capable of running on LNG with sufficient tank capacity, you probably have to add 12 or 13 million to that. Uh, and you really can't make the math work because, I mean, even on HFO prices where they are today on the curve, so I haven't checked, let's say they're $275 next year, that's equivalent of $35 oil if you convert to Brent, which means you would have to put LNG onto the ship at $6, which I think very few people think you can actually do, uh, including the whole distribution cost. And then you're not even advertising that extra 12, 13. So I think we're going to get there. Uh, but so far, it seems that the end users aren't really, they would like to be greener, but they wouldn't really like to pay for it. And I think that's giving a very uh, healthy 
course in, in ordering, which hopefully means, well, is maybe one of the reasons why, why ordering isn't really picking up in spite of the healthy rates we're seeing, in addition to the other things like, you know, lack of capital available, etc. But uh, I think we're heading that way, but I think it's going to take time because costs are too high and, and the end users aren't really willing to pay for it. All right, that's it. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.